The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Over the past few decades, the medical world has made great strides in treating heart disease, diabetes, and even some forms of cancer. But the same cannot be said for brain-related disorders. We don't have meaningful treatments for all too common neurological ailments from Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis to even depression and chronic anxiety. Today, a neurologist and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. David Perlmutter, joins us again on HealthWatch to discuss the latest science linking brain health and brain dysfunction to what goes on in our gut, as well as practical advice on how to address various brain dysfunctions. His latest book is Brain Maker, The Power of Gut Microbes to Heal and Protect Your Brain for Life. Welcome back to HealthWatch, Dr. David Perlmutter. I am delighted to be here. Thank you, Dr. Newman. Well, let's start out with um, something that you say at the very beginning of BrainMaker, that actually a lot of these conditions that we fear, these neurological conditions, a lot of them are actually preventable. Tell us some of the research that you've discovered around prevention and um, brain dysfunctions. I will. You know, it's uh, interesting to take a step back and just even analyze the notion of why we don't talk about preventive medicine as it relates to the brain. Everyone's so geared up to talk about a heart-smart diet and women having uh, calcium-rich foods to prevent uh, bone loss, but the bottom line is no one talks about prevention when you're talking about brain disorders. We're just, you know, all you hear about is, well, when you're suddenly uh, cognitively impaired, why you should take this pill or that pill. But the brain really avails itself incredibly well to lifestyle changes. Uh, an interesting report came out in the journal Lancet Neurology by a researcher at the University of California demonstrating that about 53-54% of Alzheimer's, for example, could be prevented if people would just simply make some simple lifestyle changes. So what we've now learned, you know, what's been so frustrating in the field of neurology, and I as a neurologist, um, like other neurologists, pretty well adopted the idea of diagnose and adios, meaning, you know, we did our best to make a diagnosis and had very little to offer people. We now know that the answer for some of our most compelling brain challenges may well lie outside of the brain, meaning we have probably been looking in the wrong place all this time to find the answers to such compelling issues as Alzheimer's and autism and depression, etc. Turns out that the gut plays a major role in determining things brain-related, in determining the brain's ability to function, the brain's resistance to disease long-term, etc. And it's a very humbling notion to think that the answer all this time wasn't in the brain, but it, it turns out to be in the gut. And, and you s- once asked uh, Slick Willie Sutton, the bank robber, why do you rob banks? And he said, well, that's because that's where the money is. <laughs> and you'd think that's where we should be looking for the answers to brain disorders. Turns out it, is, uh, it, it certainly seems contradictory, but it's not. It's elsewhere. And, and if, in fact, in some traditional medicines way back in the past, they made this connection between brain function and, and gut health. I think you mentioned Hippocrates, but you also mentioned a 19th century biologist who's, who says the quote, death begins in the colon. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it is certainly not just the brain. We, we understand that the fundamental process uh, of any degenerative condition in human physiology uh, is related to what is called inflammation. And that stated, 
uh, it means that you know having a leverage point for coronary artery disease, inflammatory disorder, type two diabetes, cancer. Uh, these are all inflammatory issues, as well as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, autism. These are inflammatory issues that have their origin in the gut, not in the brain. So, uh, again, it, you know, it's humbling to, to recognize that, and, uh, but it's also very, very empowering because the very changes that happen to the gut that pave the way for these worrisome conditions are fixable. Uh, they are, we can make these changes immediately to the gut bacteria which are involved in creating brain chemistry, in regulating immunity, in regulating metabolism and inflammation. So that's the empowering part of this story as revealed in the narrative in, in BrainMaker, that we can make the changes today so it's all well and good that we understand now this connection. We understand what we've learned from the Human Microbiome Project that studied the human gut bacteria. Now that we have that information and we can connect the dots in terms of the biochemistry, we know that it makes sense to recommend for individuals to eat fermented food like kombucha and kimchi and, and cultured yogurt and prebiotic food, rich in prebiotic fiber to nurture the gut bacteria like jicama, Mex, uh, Mexican yam, uh, Jerusalem artichoke, dandelion greens, asparagus, onions, garlic, leek. So um, this is it's a very empowering time. And so further... When we can take a step back and say, gee, our microbiome, that collection of the hundred trillion bugs that live in the gut is so vital for our health and our brain health, what are we doing to mess it up? And there's, that's when the information comes to, to, to light, why it's so important to eat properly and avoid antibiotics unless they're necessary, for example. Well, let's talk about more of the risk factors for messing up our microbiome. You, you, you say in, in BrainMaker that a leaky gut leads to a leaky brain. Perhaps you can start there and then tell us some of the other risk factors other than the overuse of antibiotics that uh, would potentially course. mess up the situation for uh, optimal brain health. So the integrity of the gut lining is one cell thick, extending from the esophagus throughout the entire rest of the digestive system. One cell barrier separates things inside the gut from the systemic circulation. And these cells are held together by what is called a tight junction, cement, if you will. Anything that can threaten those connections can cause the gut to become more permeable and then allow things within the gut to get out into the circulation, and that can challenge the immune system, basically amping up uh, things like inflammation, again, the cornerstone of just about everything bad you don't want to get. So we've got to do everything we can to maintain the lining of the gut, that barrier to keep us healthy. And that's where we have this discussion about changing the gut bacteria by overusing, for example, antibiotics, by drinking water that still contains residual chlorine, uh, by other drugs like the acid-blocking drugs that everybody thinks they need to take to help them digest food, uh, and even the non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen that is so big on the, on the uh, shelves of the, of the pharmacies, non-prescription, that people take to reduce inflammation actually damages the lining of the gut. And this is measurable in the doctor's office doing a simple blood test. And that blood test measures something called LPS or lipopolysaccharide. 
That is a chemical normally found within the gut. When you're measuring that or antibodies against it uh, in the bloodstream, it's telling you that the, bl- the gut has become permeable and that the process of inflammation has been amped. The cornerstone of diabetes, type 2, Alzheimer's, autism, depression is an inflammatory disease, and even MS. So we measure that, and we find dramatic elevations of this LPS chemical, again, a marker of gut permeability and a marker of inflammation in such things as Lou Gehrig's disease, Alzheimer's disease, autism, and even major depressive disorder. So what a revolution in our understanding about what's really going on when we begin to conceive of depression as not representing a Paxil or Prozac deficiency, but rather having its origin in the breakdown of the gut lining uh, related to amping up inflammation, then it becomes a whole new game. We now gain a huge number of new tools that we, ne- that we as neurologists and psychiatrists would never have considered in the past, recognizing that when we heal the gut, it has a huge uh, impact on brain health. So, Dr. Perlmutter, you, you mentioned that depression is an inflammatory disease, that it correlates, among other diseases, with, with inflammatory markers. And, and we now know, as, as you alluded to, that diseases like Alzheimer's, they correlate with high blood sugar, and some neurologists are even calling it type 3 diabetes. Let's talk about some of the most problematic foods that, if you were suffering from either a neurological or a mood disorder, you might want to try first pulling out of your diet to see if they made any difference. I'd say the, probably the biggest issue for, for most people, aside from sugar, would be artificial sweeteners, especially aspartame. And what we now understand is, you know, we've seen that what is the risk of diabetes on drinking sugar-sweetened beverages certainly goes way up. Uh, drink, you know, you drink soda all day, your risk of diabetes is going to go up. But who knew? that the risk of diabetes would be twice as high in people who are drinking no sugar, sugar-free, no-calorie sodas. Think about that. And it's the aspartame, and we've known that since the study came out several years ago. But what we didn't understand is the, uh, is the mechanism. And it turns out from a study that was just published in Israel that the mechanism that relates artificial sweeteners to diabetes risk is changes in the microbiome, the changes to the gut bacteria that are imparted by the consumption of aspartame. So, you know, I'm in favor of drinking beverages that are very low in sugar, and especially those beverages that, are, that do contain bacteria, that do contain good probiotic bacteria like kombucha. And I have to say that uh, last week, walking along the river there in, in Portland, Oregon, uh, I stopped into one place, and they were you could bring your own container, and they would fill your container from an on-tap dispenser of kombucha. So uh, Portland gets my vote. I'm spending a lot of time <laughs> in your city these days. I want you to know. Oh, that's great to hear. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about fructose as a sugar. It used to be a sugar that people really um, looked to as an alternative to other sugars because it doesn't immediately raise blood sugar in the way that glucose does because of the way it goes through the liver. Uh, tell us why fructose could be particularly problematic and which fruits are ones that would be better to eat than others? Well, the reason that we're so down on fructose, and of course that is the, the uh, sweetener by leaps and bounds that is used in America today, it comes from corn, also of course found it naturally in uh, fruit, hence the name fructose, fruit sugar. Uh, fruit sugar. 
But the problem is exactly what you mentioned, and that is that fructose doesn't raise blood sugar, and as such, it won't raise insulin levels. And here's why that's a problem. Because you really want, after you consume carbohydrates like sugar, you want your insulin levels to immediately go up because that's how your body puts the blood sugar away on the one hand. But on the other hand, insulin is a powerful signal to the brain that you should stop eating. It, it stimulates what's called the satiety center so you can back off in terms of consuming food. So when you're drinking uh, those uh, drinks that are high fructose corn syrup or other products that are sweetened with it, you're not sending the signal that you've got to push yourself away from the table, and that's what the connection is to obesity. The other thing about fructose, two other things, is it directly enhances the leakiness of the gut. And further, fructose binds to protein, uh, which changes proteins in a way that makes them more inflammatory. And it does so much more aggressively than glucose. We call this process glycation uh, of proteins. When you bind sugar to proteins, it turns on inflammation and, who knew, leads to increased leakiness of the gut. So on multiple counts, uh, fructose is a very, very worrisome, what we call monosaccharide or, or simple sugar in comparison to glucose. And yet, gosh, we're seeing it everywhere. It, it, it increases a triglyceride formation, uh, increases the risk of what's called fatty liver disease. And at the end of the day, the worst thing about it is it's so darn pro-inflammatory. So obviously you'd want to remove high fructose corn syrup and try to eat less processed foods, but would you also recommend that people who are wanting to prevent or to treat a brain dysfunction move towards fruits that are more uh, glucose versus fructose? Well, I, I think, and I'm loving these questions, this is excellent. Uh, I'd say that by and large, though it may seem, seem challenging, back down on all fruits uh, as a group. You know, having the apple a day to keep the neurologist away, not a bad idea. A handful of blueberries, perfectly fine. Half a banana, hey, no one's going to argue with that. But the notion of six to eight servings of fruit that does contain glucose and fructose each day, as some have recommended, is exactly the wrong approach to brain health. The brain wants to eat fat, and fat is good for the body, it's good for the brain. You know, we've become a nation of fat phobics over the past couple of decades because we've received some really bad information that was not based on science and that was totally unlike a diet humans have ever eaten in the past couple of million years. And how incredible it is uh, that the United States a Dietary Advisory Committee just two months ago came out and said, fat is not the problem in the diet. What is killing Americans, what's leading to degenerative diseases of the heart and brain, happens to be the carbs and the sugars. That's our downfall. We've always eaten a diet that's welcome to the table, good fats, obviously not the modified fats, not the trans fats, but the good uh, fats that are found in things like nuts and seeds and olive oil, coconut oil, grass-fed beef, free-range chicken, wild uh, eggs, uh, wild uh, fish that's not farm-raised, etc. There are plenty of bad fats out there that should be avoided because they are like coffin nails. You know, they're bad for your health. But again, what, what you and I are talking about that's so incredible that is new is that your diet affects your brain. And the dietary choices that you make today will change your brain's function today and also pave the way for a healthier brain that is resistant 
to those very things that we fear the most down the line. You know, Alzheimer's is now the third leading cause of death in America after cancer and heart disease. That is a scary proposition, but again, this is a preventable illness. That's what we're learning from our leading-edge scientists around the world, and the mission in BrainMaker is to take that information and you know, repurpose it in such a way that people can feel empowered and know what they can do from an action perspective to live a brain-healthy, heart-healthy, diabetes risk reduction, cancer risk reduction uh, uh, perspective just by changing food and lifestyle. Well, let me ask you a question, Dr. Perlmutter. Uh, in your last book, The Grain Brain, you, you talk mostly about the potential uh, downsides of gluten for brain function. And you do have a section on, in The Brain Maker on, on gluten as something to potentially consider removing. Um, what, when when con- considering these dietary recommendations, say removing uh, or minimizing fruit and taking out gluten, um, what time frame would you suggest for most people to to evaluate those those experiments a couple you, of weeks a actually, couple of weeks it happens very very quickly and the you know it's really a question of what does your plate look like and the plate should be colorful lots of different colors of food so you're getting all kinds of nutrients the carotenoids to, to add color to vegetables but it's you know we really want to relegate the meat dish to not being the focal point. You know we're so used to ordering dinner. Well, I'll have the chicken, I'll have the steak, or I'll have the fish, and then ask the question, what does it come with? Right? Hopefully, it's coming with some Brussels sprouts or asparagus. But I think the appearance of the plate should relegate that meat, that animal portion of the, of the program, if that's what you choose to eat, to being uh, the side dish. And then also welcome as a side dish some fermented uh, foods like, for example, kimchi or sauerkraut. Now we're adding back good bacteria. And welcome to the table maybe some coleslaw made from jicama. So we're welcoming uh, into, the, into your diet the prebiotic fiber, that inulin in jicama, Mexican yam, or um, other foods like asparagus or onions, etc., that will nurture the gut bacteria, let them grow, and that will pave the way for changing to a more healthy balance the gut bacteria, allow you to regain a good mood, help you with your depression, and help you lose weight. Because it's the bacteria in the gut, the balance of the gut bacteria, that really determines the set point for your weight. I have plenty of patients that swear to me that they're taking in 2,400, 2,500 calories a day and cannot lose weight and plenty of patients who are eating 3,500 calories and lose weight whenever they want. Why is that? It is because certain bacteria, certain arrays of bacteria, will either harvest more calories from a given meal or not. And that is all determined by the foods that you eat and obviously other lifestyle issues like the use of antibiotics and the medications, as I mentioned earlier. Well, we don't have time today to talk about some of the interesting correlations with antibiotics and obesity and antibiotic use and and even breast cancer. But um, could you talk about looking for what people should look for in a probiotic supplement if they're looking to potentially replenish? Well, again, uh, you can take a probiotic. Uh, There are more and more wonderful supplements that are probiotics uh, available at health food stores. And I think what we're seeing is a real... Um, rapid evolution, not just in the quality of the of the product from having different strains of bacteria 
uh, but also quality now in terms of allowing the, the bacteria to arrive alive. In other words, they uh, are still viable in the package and are created in such a way that they will get through the stomach acid and remain viable into the intestine. So in addition to um, probiotic foods, which are the fermented foods, uh, probiotic supplements are certainly a, a reasonable approach and a, and a good time. Well, it's a pleasure having you back on HealthWatch today, Dr. Perlmutter. Could you, could you just briefly uh, tell us anything that's exciting you in the, on the horizon around this research? Well, um, we are. Ch- uh, I am chairing a, an international symposium on the microbiome in Hollywood, Florida, in October. Uh, if people visit my website, which is drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com, they can see uh, what's upcoming, what is the current news. You know, we post every day. And also, if they visit the book uh, Brainmaker site on drperlmutter.com, I actually have videos of patients one child with autism that we treated, another uh, gentleman, 43 years old, with multiple sclerosis, video of him regaining the ability to walk. So um, it's really very compelling um, how exciting is this research on the microbiome and um, um, how incredible that right there in Portland, Oregon State, uh, there's wonderful microbiome research uh, going on. So you guys are right at the epicenter of that. That's so cool. Well, again, thank you for being here on Health Watch today. Thank you. Bye-bye.